Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. So, Kevin, what did we watch this evening? Uh, We just watched The Big Combo, a 1955 film directed by Joseph Lewis, best known for his 1949 film, Gun Crazy. Why did we watch this? Well, it appeared on a roundup. I want to give credit where credit is due. If indeed credit is what is at stake here, and perhaps a measure of blame. It looks like the... UK-based newspaper, The Independent, ranked it as one of the top film noirs of all time. Neither one of us had seen it, so we said, let's give it a shot. Always mm-hmm. up for good film noir. Yes, we are. 
if I had to sum it up, if I had to sum it up, I'd call it the mixed combo because it had a lot of really good stuff, but I don't think any of that stuff was supported by the overall story. That's my hot take. I thought a few key storytelling elements were sort of lost in the mix here, but uh, it had enough that was seemed really innovative and good that uh, I appreciated that. Uh, I think overall, I would agree. There were some things that I thought were uh, verging on brilliant and other things that I thought were just shockingly uh, tedious and humdrum. Yeah, it was kind of like one of those like things where you're, you're kind of plodding along, you're plodding along, you're like barely keeping any interest, you're barely keeping your eyes open, and then bam, something happens and you're like, yeah, that was so good. <laughs> Why couldn't the whole movie or the writing be like that? I feel like whoever was in charge of cinematography uh, whoever was in charge of some of the uh, the audio moments that we talked about, we're gonna get into. Um, that was all really fantastic and felt like very fresh, even today, even it being as old as it is. Should we uh, like dive right in? Yeah, I think we've given you a quick plot summary, and now we can kind of go into the overall story and what we I, ended I, up liking. I, I think the film started off on a great note with some amazing music. <laughs> yes. It had this kind of slinky, jazzy opening. Um, feels kind of sleazy. I said, if this were, if this were, you know, if I my life were a movie, I'd love this to play when I'm walking down the street. Dun, 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 dun. And it's just, it's big and brassy, but it also has a kind of a faint air of melancholy that I really liked. And then as this music played, we we saw people crossing the street, which seemed kind of banal, which kind of. Uh, for me, was uh, pretty uh, suggestive of what the movie is like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you see, you see, really gr- a really great element combined with a really tedious element. Really, this is the hot crossing the street sequence. <laughs> yeah, you're like, wow, this music, it's hidden. Like, where are we going? And then it's like people, hot pedestrian action. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty. That's a very good point. I think that is. The microcosm of the big combo. It's like the combination of the sublime and the mundane. <laughs> That's the big combo we're being treated to tonight. Um, you know, and then I thought they kind of made up for the the pedestrian crosswalk scene um, by actually having a young lady running through the shadows behind the scenes of this boxing match. Um, that seemed like it could be going, getting some getting some suspense built up. She's being chased by some goons. You love goons, you know, in a in a I noir. love a good goon. Yeah, I love a good goon chase. I'm not even sure at this late date why she was running. I think it's so this lady, aforementioned lady who is running behind the scenes of this boxing ring trying to escape these goons is uh the golden-haired Susan who is um our leading lady um for tonight and uh she is trying to escape uh these bad guys. She is uh, the mall of main gangster in town, Mr. Brown, and she is uh, trying to get away from him and and just does not want to sit with him at the match. So she's kind of, uh, you know, reaching her limit to what she can take. She's been with this guy for four years, and uh, it's clearly inciting in her a lot of bouts of self-loathing, and she's just trying to get away. That was my take. I, I wasn't sure uh, what was going on because she didn't really seem to be super motivated to end her relationship with Brown, Mr. Brown, if you will. She just seemed to be running away from these goons for no apparent reason. And then uh, I didn't really understand that. And then they catch up with her right outside, right near a lunch wagon. 
and she says, you know, maybe I'll get some lunch. And the music swells as the men from the lunch wagon look on at her meaningfully. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens anytime I decide what we want to get for lunch. <laughs> bum, ba dum, ba dum. <laughs> A single tear runs down the lunch man's cheek. <laughs> He'll remember this night for the rest of his life. Also, doesn't it seem like nighttime? It seems like nighttime out, and they're like, "Let's get lunch." I mean, that's maybe a bold, bold mealtime choice. I'm not, I'm not saying you can't get lunch for dinner or lunch for late night snack, but it just. Well, you know, (laughs) these gangsters—they live a life different from you and me. They do all their business at night. Maybe they sleep during the day, have their lunch like maybe 8 p.m. Yeah, I, I don't know. I respect it. We then. We cut to the police station, a busy police station, where we meet the uh, mopey, charisma-free cop, Dan, or no, Leon Diamond. Is it Leon Diamond? Uh, Le- no, it's it's Leonard Diamond. Leonard Diamond. It's Neil Diamond. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> He's going to sing for us. No, yeah, Leonard Diamond, mopey, totally charisma-free Oh, but we're informed he's a loose cannon on the edge because he's doing he's he's going after this one guy, this guy who runs the big combo in town. Uh, apparently, a combination in this uh, police parlance is it refers to a crime syndicate. And this crime syndicate is run by a man I think, as we've alluded to, named Mister Brown. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe we ever learned Mr. Brown's first name. No, and nor do we really need to. All we need to know is he runs a big combo, and that is not a fast food restaurant, but that is, as I said, a crime syndicate that runs this town. I'd kind of like to know his first name. There's a scene later on in the picture where his girlfriend refers to him as Mr. Brown. That just seems a little awkward and stilted to me. Well, frankly, Kevin, maybe maybe we could do with some more formality around here. You know, Mr. Greenlee. (laughs) I'm Miss Kane. I'm just saying. <laughs> There's something to be said for that kind of decorum. Before we start talking about what happened at the police station with this charisma-free... Uh, I think mopey. a lot of the problems were due to this guy's lack of charisma, this this lead. I I don't want to follow him anywhere, but anyway, pr- proceed. The police station looked great. It was a cheap set, but the lighting and the shadows... It was very evocative. It really drew me in until the people started speaking. Yeah, I think that's kind of a good summary for the entire film. It draws you in until people open their mouths. And and and, and the fact of the matter is that so much of the film just is beautifully shot and, and just excellent use of these kind of oversaturated lights and light hitting people on their, you know, the, just the right moment and, and shadows creeping in smoky foggy scenes i mean this this noir looks really incredible in my opinion yes i'd, I'd love to live in this world <laughs> anyway so so this this dull stodgy dullard's boss who we are told is basically the javert of the force because he's obsessed with taking down mr brown except you know javert why why crime. are you so obsessed with this guy he's only causing all the crime in town but you're spending too much money for on him so then the stodgy guy, the charisma-free guy, for some reason, to justify himself, he plays a recording. Yeah. What, what, what was that? I don't know. Yeah, he, he pulls out this tape recorder being like, I knew you were going to ask me about all the expenses that I incurred while investigating this guy. But here, instead of just telling you myself, why don't you listen to a recording of me explaining what it's all for? I I wish I could pull that with my bosses. Like, why are you? Why are you doing this? Your 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 behavior is baffling and upsetting. Oh well, just listen to my creepy recording of it. I feel like people would 
evacuate the block if they got something like that from me. <laughs> Anya's about to do something drastic. And then we had this odd moment where uh, the boss says, you know, we got nothing on Mr. Brown. He seems, you know, be pretty clean. And uh, the stodgy guy says, well, you know, that's, that's pretty suspicious itself because he's so clean. And his boss says, uh, you can't tell a man is guilty because he's too innocent. Honestly, you know, that, yep. that makes you think. It makes you think. <laughs> this, is, this is some copaganda where you just have this virtuous cop. He knows what's right and wrong. And you know what? Darn it. Even if a guy's not doing anything wrong, maybe that's a little suspicious. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should figure that out because I don't like the cut of his jib. And then his boss gets to the heart of the matter. He says, you know, I think what's going on here. Well, he, he talks about how this stodgy guy has followed the gangster, Mr. Brown's mall. He's followed this mall to, I think, Cuba. He followed her to Las Vegas. And he says, you know, I think what's going on here, uh, you stodgy, charisma-free man, you love this woman. That's what I say to you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you stodgy, charisma-free man. And, of course, whenever you talk to me like that, the first thing I do is I just go get the electric razor. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fun. Um, not only does Mr. Charisma Free uh, have this creepy tape recorder for his boss, but in the middle of his boss voicing some very, very relevant concerns about him falling in love with one of the subjects of his investigation, you know, who he's trying to prosecute, um, he, he actually goes and starts shaving his face with an electric razor, as one does. So it's shocking this guy doesn't get along better with his superiors. Well, no, I mean, here's the thing. This never this never really pays off. It's not like the boss is an impediment to anything. The boss serves to kind of like bounce ideas off of him occasionally and once in a while be like, I think this is, you're going too far. But the boss never does anything to rein this guy in, which frankly, I mean, this police force was asking for a massive lawsuit based on some of the things that happened later. <laughs> and we don't even see too many other police officers, do we? Maybe they had to, like, cut their hiring budget because this guy's too busy trying to go on vacation with this lady he's stalking. I think at some point he's going to be asking, like, oh, wait, I need another $18,000. I need this or that. I think he's bleeding this place dry. Yeah, I think he's he's bad for policing in this in this community. I think he's a bad egg. But he's really <laughs> interested in... Uh, in this, in this young lady. Yeah, and, and um, the boss reminds him that you, you know, your, your job isn't to reform wayward girls. But, of course, that's not what this guy thinks. What, is, what does he think? I think he thinks he's going to reform her with his, uh, you know, his, his dick. <laughs> he, he gives off a bad vibe. I feel like, I mean, the, the actor did it, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the actor or whatever, but it just, he's very bland. But I think in real I, life, I, I, I think a- it. I think in real life, if you knew a guy like this, it would be like, yeah, he'd be on your stake, steer clear list. I have a problem with this actor. He's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. And then his boss says, well, you know, it's too late to reform her because she's been with him for four years. That's a lot of days and a lot of nights. Yeah, it's pretty. It's all they're all pretty. It's pretty creepy. And then uh, we get just a little bit of background on this woman because we cut to a scene where she runs into this really, really, really old man. What did you think his name was? I thought his name was Mr. Audubon. (laughs) (laughs) Like the bird guy. What what did you think his name was? I thought his name was Mr. Audible. And, you know, just Jeff Bezos being such a visionary, he went back (laughs) 50 years and and did some uh, product placement here. 
Mr. Audible. And remember, guys, you can read the the big combo on Audible. <laughs> with this, with the hashtag combo 2020. Some affiliate links in there. So in the midst of her conversation on the dance floor with this elderly man whose name we don't know, it comes out a little bit of her background. She's a classically trained penis. Kind of an unusual background for a gangster small. She's a classically trained what? <laughs> Pianist. <laughs> piano player. Yeah, let's just call her a piano player. <laughs> but then she's so upset at the prospect of dancing with this old coot on the dance floor. She takes some pills and uh, you've she been, drops. You've been there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she just dropped. She tries to kill herself. Uh, yeah, and, and so we don't really even really know who Mr. Brown is. I guess it could like build up suspense. Did you feel like it was effective storytelling? No. Yeah, and here's the thing. Like, the stuff with the piano is interesting, and we do see some of that later, where she's very interested in piano music, and it sort of signifies her kind of coming back into her own after years of living under this guy's mm. thumb. But um, I'm going to say, one of the problems with this movie is that I don't feel like we ever really get to know Susan. There's something there. It's not like she's just completely flat and there's nothing there like the cop. But I thought it would have been a much more effective movie had it either been more from her perspective or, you know, just give us give us more of her character. How does how does kind of a nerdy piano girl get involved with this, you know, high powered criminal? Like what what happened? What made her fall in love with him? What made her stay with him? Why is she now? feeling bad about it. We don't really get any sense of her motivations other than, you know, she's a fallen woman and she's trying to make it right, which is just, you know, stupid. Yeah, the women in this movie are basically just tools for the men or to make the men feel certain things. Yeah, and it's kind of ridiculous because a lot of blame gets thrown at the women, you know, uh, you know, f- for, for men's crime. <laughs> so now we cut... To uh, behind the scenes at the boxing match where we see a man who we later learn is Mr. Brown. He is with a man wearing a hearing aid and a boxer. And he starts uh, talking to this boxer. But first he gets into this long, bizarre monologue where he keeps on pointing to the deaf man, the man with the hearing aid. He says, hey, this fella, he's got a nice manicure. I've got a nice manicure. This guy has a... Uh, a nice looking suit. I got a nice looking suit. It just goes on a little bit too long. Way too long. And the whole thing is basically just him rubbing his hands together, being like, how am I so evil? Like, it's just very corny and stupid. It's like, this guy and I are the same, but hey, I've got the razzmatazz, and I'm in charge, and he's not. What separates us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spunk? Yeah, a little bit of that old-fashioned uh, spunk. No, it's hatred. Get it? Because he's evil. Because then he then takes a sl- he slaps the boxer, but the boxer doesn't hit him back. And he says, well, this means you don't hate me. You don't got the hatred. So I'm done with you. And the boxer's like, whole balls? It's just the stupidest fucking thing. It made me like not want to stop watching, frankly. I just I, that scene really irritated for me for reasons I don't really comprehend at this point. It was a bad scene, but uh I'm curious if you would agree with me. I felt that Mr. Brown had more charisma and was more interesting than the fella playing the stodgy detective. I thought Mr. Brown did a fine job in his portrayal. I think he had a lot of corny dialogue to get through and to chew on, but I thought he had a really nice creepy smile and a charisma when he was explaining certain things 
you'd almost feel like, oh, if I was talking to him, I might believe him. Yeah. So I thought that was great. I wish, <laughs> I wish uh, the uh, other characters in this film had an ounce of that. There was nothing wrong with his performance. Yeah, I thought, I thought I could see it, and maybe with a better script, he would have been able to deliver something more. So then our mopey cop friend learns that uh, the uh, mall has tried to kill herself. And so he rushes to the hospital. To yell at her. <laughs> yeah, he immediately places her under arrest because apparently in this burg, if you're suicidal and try to kill yourself, you get six months in prison. That's a good and helpful policy, right, Kevin? It makes a lot of sense to me. But of course, he says this. We're being sarcastic, obviously. <laughs> he says this. But then there's no indication she's ever spends a day in jail for this. Yeah, and he, he just, you know, it's like, oh, she just killed herself. So let me immediately, like, just start yelling at her. And and he seems like a guy, and this is interesting, like, he's not, he, he kind of talks about, like, oh, people are victims of Mr. Brown, but he never really cites specific examples. And it just comes across, like, it's just all about him wanting to capture this guy really bad. Right. It doesn't make any sense. And then when he talks with her and, and is yelling at her after her suicide attempt, he introduces himself to her and she introduces herself to them, him. So they've never even spoken. So she, he's in love with this woman. He's never even talked to her. Who, yeah, who? So he's basically stalking her, from what we can tell. And it, he's, he's creating an image of her in his mind. Is maybe maybe he has a messiah complex. He wants to save her. And maybe if this were a different and better written film. That could be an interesting angle to explore. He wants to save this woman. He, he's obsessed with her. Maybe that makes him a bit of a darker character. And maybe he has some bad stuff going on too, just like the gangster. But it's not that sophisticated of a story. So we don't really ever get to explore that angle. So it's not that the angle is bad in of itself because it's a noir. It's supposed to be dark. But it's that we just, it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. And he's just the good guy and the bad guy is the bad guy and so, therefore, everything he does is justified and everything the bad guy does is, you know, evil. Yeah. And the woman is just a prize to be batted about between them. <laughs> That's what women are for, right, Kevin? <laughs> That's right, Miss Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being formal. In the midst of his conversation with her in the hospital, he she alludes to a name she's heard Mr. Brown use. name is Alicia. 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 And oh, and then she gives some bullshit story about how Mr. Brown wrote the name Alicia on a moist glass. And like, if you picture a glass in your hand, how many letters are you able? Like, let's say it's the moistest glass. It's the foggiest glass you've ever seen. How many letters are you able to cram in there to the point where somebody else can come over and see what the hell you've written? So is this like just the biggest glass? I mean, now, okay, now I feel silly. Because now that I'm thinking about it, maybe yeah, I, I maybe different... it was the mirror. But yeah, I... that, that, was, that was that was my perception. <laughs> that was my perception. She was talking about like a mirror or a glass pane in a window. I was thinking of like a cup. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Like some kind of like medieval times giant glass goblet? What? Yes, I was debating whether not to say something. <laughs> Oops. But I wanted I wanted to hear your big goblet. Riff. My big goblet riff just got shattered <laughs> on the floor. That's well, my mind's just a little foggy, I guess, more so than the glass. Um, so yeah, um, so in an attempt to learn more about Alicia, uh, our mopey friend, the detective, says obviously, what we need to do is we need to arrest everybody, just violate everyone's civil rights in the city. 
anybody who's connected in any way whatsoever with Mr. Brown, let's arrest him. So then we have shots of police cars like clown cars because the police cars pull up to the police station and an endless stream of uh, hoods come out of them and of these cars being arrested. And of course, being like this is the 1950s, every single one of these hoods is impeccably tailored wearing a lovely suit and tie. Yeah, they all, they all look snazzy as hell. And I like the scene where they're all they're all just sitting in this pen being like basically like what the hell is wrong with this guy? Like <laughs> we do crime for a living and we're appalled by this <laughs> display. And at some point somebody aptly uh, I, I believe the uh the you know the mopey lieutenant's boss ends up pointing out to him like you know like we're going to get sued <laughs> by like 50, 50 guys. <laughs> this is going to be a class action disaster. <laughs> And he's right. Cause they just, this, this, is a, this is a horrible mistake. <laughs> this is, is going to cost the city millions. This would go down in the books as one of the worst mistakes this police force ever made. And they would fire this guy and they would totally fire everyone involved and they would just redo the police force because this is just, this is a disaster. And speaking of mistakes, in the next scene, Mr. Brown agrees to take a test that appears to be polygraph test <laughs> yeah but it's this, not <laughs> this is unlike any polygraph test i've ever seen can you describe this test it's basically some word association mumbo jumbo so a normal polygraph would work and you would uh, maybe set a baseline uh by being asked questions about like what's your name what's your eye color um and, and giving responses that would allow the of uh, administrators of the of the polygraph test to see what 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 your emotional and physical reaction is to each question. And, and before you go, on, I want to note before they give this bizarre test, they hook him up, so they're monitoring his heart rate and his blood pressure. Yeah, so you're thinking, ah, they're gonna polygraph him. That's you know not as effective as we used to think it was, but okay, that's a yeah. legitimate police. But instead, it becomes some bizarre word association game. So they'll be like meatballs and he'll say spaghetti and they'll say <laughs> spaghetti and he'll say patinis my favorite <laughs> spaghetti joint <laughs> it's like what what if, what sh- charades game is this <laughs> we just wanted to get to know mr brown and we figured we'd do some fun games with him to uh <laughs> get a sense <laughs> it's a it's a real it's a mess and then of course they go too far because they ask alicia and he says, no. <laughs> and then he takes off the polygraph equipment and walks out because the whole thing's pretty stupid. And around this point, I think our, our mopey detective is warned that his job might be in danger. Again, which no, never comes to pass. So then he's kind of, I guess, depressed and he wants to go somewhere for some love and comfort. And lucky for him, this detective who was in love with the gangster's mall... He apparently has a lady of his own. He's two-timing some poor dancer named Rita, who, frankly, is my favorite character in the film. Tell us about Rita. Rita's a cool lady. She's a burlesque dancer. She's understanding. But she doesn't really take any guff from this guy. She can, You can tell that she kind of thinks he's a loser, and she's correct. But, you know, she, she sees some good in him and, and is going to date him occasionally. Um but, you know, she, she knows her worth. She knows that he shouldn't just have ditched her for, you know, ghosted her for six months and then calls her up because he's mopey because his big police bust is going to result in a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Here, I, I might disagree with you. Does she know his her worth? Does she take no guff? Because in their big romantic scene at his apartment, 
Uh, he says, oh, Rita, you're a beautiful girl, but you're stupid. But, you know, he, she immediately leaves after that. So I think that, that gives you your answer. I, I guess that's true. She says, put on my shoes. There, with Rita, there is a recurring theme around her shoes and feet. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> yes, I'm not going to comment on what that says about our mopey detective or our talented director. But um, yeah, so that that's a whole little side plot. So you know, you know, she's a woman. She is romantically connected to this detective. So she, and she's not the main woman because the main woman is Susan, the uh, the gangster's mall. So you know, she's dead. <laughs> she's gonna die. No spoilers there. <laughs> we all just know it. That's a bit of a spoiler. She know she's <laughs> Rita's dead, stone dead. The second she walks on the screen, that's just, that's a little bit of a spoiler. The second she walks on the screen, you know she's dead. Is that correct? I had high hopes for Rita. Yeah, you, had, you thought they were going to settle down. I thought those two kids had a chance. If Rita and uh, this charisma-free guy couldn't make it work, who can? But speaking of fun couples, I think at this point we cut back to uh, the blonde gangster's mall. She's like listening to some jazzy ha- happening piano tune. And then Mr. Brown comes in. And they start bantering, and then he grabs her face and gives her a rough kiss. Yeah, that the whole scene gave me bad vibes, honestly. And he's also yelling at her, says, you know, a woman dresses for a man. You better put on white, because that's what I like. Yeah, th- this movie, this movie, I mean, like, I know he's supposed to be the bad guy, obviously, but this movie's got a got a problem with ladies, I think, and it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. And then there's an oddly uh, sexual moment where after he grabs her and kisses her, he starts kissing the back of her neck, and he starts kissing down her back. And he he's, as he lowers himself down her back, he disappears from the screen, and we zoom in on her mouth, or, or her face, as she is uh, enjoying his kisses. And we're left to speculate where his mouth is or when he's kissing her at those moments. Well, I know you were speculating about that, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a dissertation on it. Yeah, clearly you described that in, in, in quite intricate detail. But you know, a woman doesn't care about how a man makes his living, Kevin. Only how he makes love. Yes, that's what that's what we've learned in this picture. That, that Rita was a line. said that. <laughs> my friend Rita said that. And she's your favorite character. She's my favorite character. She said that. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but, um, you know. I, I, certainly it's true in your case. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Guess so. You're known. You're seen. But um, that yeah, that was uh, that was a uh, that was it's got a lot of weird sex stuff in the picture. I mean, it is a noir, but you know, and it's you know, it's an old movie, so obviously it has issues with women. It's not, it's not the worst I've ever seen. But there's there's like a lot of blamey stuff with the ladies that I a lot of blamey stuff find disturbing. The then Rita, your favorite character, makes a comeback because she wants to uh, warn. Our mopey detective friend. And at this point, she's about to go on stage. And so she's wearing quite the interesting outfit. She's wearing a big fluffy crown. She looks like a sugar plum fairy. But, uh, you know, maybe it was a Christmas theme burlesque performance. Yeah, there's a lot of those. <laughs> We've all been to those, right? Place to take the kids. Yeah, where do you go with your family during the holidays? So then the, the detective, after he gets this warning. I'm going to say this is the mark of a more sophisticated film, though. Because I think if this were a shittier film, you would have seen the burlesque performance. But we just stay in the gloomy backstage ruminating about all the ill in the world with our Moby detective. And he, he, she says well, uh, something about, where will you be? Can I see you again? And he says, I'll either, if I'm not dead, 
I'll be in jail. What a whinge bag. Jeez. <laughs> he then leaves the theater by the back door and someone immediately tries to take a punch at him. And of course, our detective's reaction is being to, a cop <laughs> is to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And uh, of course, they've, you know, it's, they kidnap him and they're going to, you know, beat him up and torture him. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of there's a weird moment when they've got him and then the guy with the hearing aid whose name is McClure you know is like wants in on the action even like he seems to work for Mr. Brown but then again the, the thugs who've kidnapped the cop also are trying to charge him for the price of admission in order you know to interrogate this guy so Should, I okay, go on. What, what I don't understand that whole thing is this a, a time where we should take just a moment to discuss the two thugs who work for Mr. Brown? Who- oh, yeah. I love them. My, they may be, Maybe they eclipse Rita. Uh, so that's, is it Fanti or Fanny? I don't know. It's Mingo and Fanti. And uh, those are those are the two very violent thugs who are the, some of the top men in Mr. Brown's organization. They're enforcers. They go around and do the violent stuff. And we are pretty sure after watching this that they are a couple, that they are in love with one another. And the evidence is sprinkled throughout the film, but they uh, share an apartment and share a bedroom. You know, this is postcode, so you wouldn't ever be able to show any couple of any mm-hmm. orientation in the same bed. Um, but they uh, comfort one another. They respect one another. They have, uh, you know, mutual respect uh, that seems to go more than friendship. And they um, they stick up for one another, and they t- they touch, you know. They and frankly, I think they have the best relationship in the whole picture. What do you think? Those are strong words. Well, I mean, they don't really have much competition, frankly, because everybody else kind of sucks. But they they seem to like like each other, and I think that is, is maybe what sets them apart from all the straight couples <laughs> in this film. So you know what? I ship Mingo and Fanti. They're violent. They should probably go to jail because they've killed a lot of people. But I respect the love they seem to have for one another. It's nice to see a little bit of affection. My feeling is also that wasn't there some sort of rule postcode with the code films where if anybody was going to be gay, they either had to die tragically or be bad in some way. Are you giving us another spoiler as to the ultimate fate? Well, I, they're of bad. I mean, they're, Mingo. Well, listen. <laughs> Well, listen, they're, all, they're bad. You, you can't keep anything under your hat. <laughs> under my big, wide-brimmed hat. Because <laughs> I'm a noir detective. <laughs> no, um, I mean, they're bad, right? And and so, they're murderers. For a gay couple for this period of film, I feel like they're portrayed you know, relatively positively. In terms of at least their interactions with each other. And they're not hitting each other around or anything. They're just kind of like, we like to hang out. So, so let's go back to this kidnapping scene. Oh, God, yeah. Everybody involved in the kidnapping seems to have the idea that if you kidnap a cop and if you torture him, you're fine. Just as long as you don't leave any marks. Because you can't be charged with kidnapping or criminal confinement if you leave any marks. And so like they torture him by playing music really loud in his ear and stuff like that. And they're kind of mean to him, but they don't leave any marks. And then... They do release him, and uh, his boss and he basically say, well, darn the luck. They didn't leave any marks on me, so how can we possibly uh, arrest these men for any crime whatsoever? I have a question. If someone were going to torture you by playing music really loudly, 
What uh, what kind of music? What artist? What genre would it be? Classical music. <laughs> Brutal. What about you, Miss Blasting some Bach. You'd be like, ah. Um, probably like stadium country. <laughs> Get some Toby <laughs> Keith in there, and I'm I'm telling you whatever you want to know. You're breaking. <laughs> I'd be I'd be selling everyone out. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty funny. I feel like that could be a fun meme format if somebody like dubbed that scene over with whatever music they don't like <laughs> and had that and had the cop writhing in pain listening to it. That would be pretty funny. Yeah, that seemed pretty bizarre. I, I thought it was an interesting form of torture. Like, I mean, obviously the legalese around that is really stupid. That's like onion field stupid. But at the same time, I thought that was an interesting form of torture because obviously like anybody who's accidentally turned on headphones too loud knows the, the exquisite pain that comes with that. Yes, they were threatening him with the possibility of a slight headache. <laughs> so, of course, he'd break. I would break. <laughs> I wouldn't want to deal with that shit. I don't want someone fucking up my eardrum. Oh, Not all of us can be so strong, Kevin, so impervious to torture. But they don't even get anything from it. Yeah, they it, don't even ask him anything. They're just like, hey, tell us some stuff. And he's like, ugh. And then they like... <laughs> And they okay. blast the music and say, okay, well, we can't leave any marks on you, otherwise we're in trouble. They don't even wait till he's awake to, like, I mean, like, they're not, he's not really awake during that. He's kind of, like, moving around, but, like, he's not talking. So then, they, like, they pour some, like, alcohol on him and drag him to his boss's house, the implication being that his boss would just assume, well, this guy's drunk. But, of course, his boss immediately understands, oh, you were kidnapped and tortured by people who wanted me to think you were drunk. Darn the luck, I don't see any marks on you. So they got away with it, kids. Sorry about it. Yeah, but if, can you imagine if the Walal was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, like, he's a witness. Like, they could have just prosecuted them all for assault and kidnapping and sent them all away for a while. Yes, because our detective buddy, he knows who did this. As a lawyer, how pissed off does that make you to see, like, just bullshit ideas about the law put out there in a way that maybe some dumbasses will believe. I'd be like, we could just go kidnap this guy and <laughs> why are we going to jail? We didn't leave any marks on him. <laughs> it's a slap in the face. Or it would be, but that would leave a mark. Oh, oh God. So the next, uh, he, uh, our detective buddy goes to a spaghetti house, I guess. Yeah, whatever the hell. That just sounds like something anti-italian racist made up like oh why don't you go to your spaghetti house but he handles himself so badly there that the guy who runs the place assumes that the detective is there to kill him but and, I, he, and he like says oh let me turn the, the stove off first so it won't start a fire and then i'll lay down you can just shoot me here love um love this guy because he just is so morose and so just depressed about everything that i would love to go you to his you, spaghetti house you can't blame him yeah he's in this movie <laughs> He just read the script. <laughs> That's why he's so down. A lot of it just feels like kind of hard to follow. Not because it's even particularly confusing, but just because like you kind of like zone in and out of consciousness watching this movie. That suddenly I, I, I conk out and then I come back into it and suddenly we're <laughs> dramatically zooming in on like a calendar. And I'm like, what's going? Has a year passed? Like what is happening? And like, it's not the, I mean, like if I was paying attention, it would be fine, but it's really hard to pay attention in some of these scenes. I, I was yawning a lot. I was, I was nodding off. So the calendar thing is apparently uh, Alicia was Mr. Brown's wife or former wife. And the implication is that they, she was killed 
by a skipper and the skipper might have been interested in this is not the skipper from Gilligan's Island. The skipper and his mate and the professor. <laughs> they all, not, they all got Alan together Hale. with the Harlem Globetrotters and did something <laughs> truly heinous. But the skipper was somehow interested in antiques. And then we zoom in on this calendar, which is from an antique store. So naturally, our detective buddy next goes to this antique store convinced that it is run by the skipper who was involved in the murder of Alicia. And I guess it is run by the former skipper. Who is Swedish, and I will note, says the line at one point, boom, one dead Swede. Thank you very much, sir. I'll remain stupid. (laughs) That stuck with me, and I feel like I should share it. (laughs) And the detective says, well, if you don't want to talk to me, just let me know if you change your mind. And the detective leaves, and then the Swede goes out the back door and is immediately shot to death. Boom, one dead Swede. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) And at this point, I was thinking, where the hell's Susan? Susan is a non-entity at this point. You know, we started on with a scene about her. We started with all this information about her committing suicide because she can't bear her life with Mr. Brown anymore. And then she kind of just falls, like fades into the shadows of this picture. But where, where's Susan at this point, Kevin? At this point where we suddenly cut to a very shadowy, evocatively, evocatively lit piano concert and Susan is in the audience. And uh, our detective buddy goes and uh, starts talking with her and doing this conversation. He says, well, you know, my boss says I love you. And she's like, gross. I'm going to file a complaint along with those other million complaints that you got from all the people you arrested under false circumstances. And also, wasn't there a comment he made about uh, her mink coat at this point? He said, those mink, those aren't minks that you're wearing. She's like, what? And he's like, those are the souls and fleshes of the people Mr. Brown has killed. And she's like, Jesus Christ, I'm taking out a restraining order against you. So no wonder she'd be taken by this charmer. (laughs) That's pretty much how I, I started flirting with you. Yeah, you insulted my mink coat, implied it was some sort of Buffalo Bill situation, and then went from there. But good news for uh, our detective buddy is his burlesque dancer friend, Rita, has some time off between shows. So she, she decides she's going to surprise him by just going and hanging out in his apartment so they can have some romantic time together. I sure hope this doesn't have any fatal consequences. Oh, how could it possibly? You're not going to give me a spoiler, are you? No, what? What happens? She gets fridged. <laughs> she uh, she gets shot because they, you know, shoot up his apartment and don't bother to check who's actually sitting there. And then our stodgy detective friend comes. And, and he-, he has a reason to be extra mad because his lady got Next. She's kind of his lady. And he looks down sadly at her and he looks at her footwear and he says, she came to see me in her best shoes. Because we all know that women only exist to motivate men in these pictures. And one of his colleagues says, well, we got to check fingerprints. And he's like, fingerprints? This isn't a time for fingerprints. It's a time for action. And the guy's like, forensics? <laughs> the CSI squad sadly leaves with the Charlie Brown music playing in the background. Yeah, I would love this guy investigating my murder, you know? Forensics, what's that, spit? I'm going to go take this to Mr. Brown himself. Like, what the hell are you talking about, buddy? You just got your girlfriend killed. I mean, like, if you were, I mean, like, everyone's been telling him, you're in danger, this is a mess. Wouldn't you tell your girlfriend, wouldn't you give her a heads up, you know what, just don't come by my place, I'll meet you when I know it's safe. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 
What a jerk. Maybe, maybe you, is it possible he didn't go see her for six months because he was worried for her safety? I mean, maybe this guy's a nice fella. Well, after you know all. what, Kevin? That's that. If that's the case, and that was the right thing to do, but he should have told her that. Like, hey, listen, the reason I disappeared, not you. It's me. It's a situation where I might get killed, and she could have been like, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, not seek you out in that time. So it was bad communication that killed poor Rita. <laughs> poor, poor Rita. But at least around the same time. We find we lose Rita. This woman is dead. But then we find out the woman we thought was dead is not dead. Because Alicia, it turns out, was not killed. Instead, it was somebody named Grazzi. Grazzi was the uh, former crime boss who uh, allegedly fled the country back to Italy um, after Mr. Brown took over. He's actually Mr. Brown's victim. Alicia's still alive. And so the police guy... He tracks her down and finds out that she's kind of in an emotionally not great place. Maybe emotionally fragile. She's in a sanatorium. So how does he handle this? He yells at her in her garden while she's trying to take a caterpillar off her flowers. He's a real charmer. He basically, this movie should have just been titled like cop goes around yelling at mentally vulnerable young women. Yeah. The big combo. (laughs) Now with more pedestrian and yelling action. (laughs) And for some reason, because he's yelling at her, I guess she's convinced to do what he wants. This guy's a charmer. He's a, he really knows how to get what he wants from the ladies. So is this when we go to the airport and for some reason that I think I might have missed, everybody's suddenly mad at McClure, the deaf man? Yes. So McClure, at this point, hears that the police are working on this Alicia angle and they've uncovered uh, the uh, Mr. Brown's ex-wife. So he says, you know what? I've been mocked by Mr. Brown for too long. I'm going to take in. I'm going to take over. I'm going to take over the whole damn organization, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the big combo my way. And so basically he uh, goes to Mingo and Fanti and says, hey, guys, let's, uh, let's meet at the airport and let's kill Mr. Brown because he's losing control of the organization. Okay. I guess I missed he's making that. some money moves. How does that go for McClure? You know, it uh, could have gone better. Basically, immediately when he says, okay, Mingo and Fanti, turn your guns on uh, Mr. Brown, they turn their guns on him, and then they corner him in a, against a fence, and he's like, I'm McClure, it's McClure. And, like, here's the <laughs> thing about that. Everyone's just been shitting on this guy the whole movie, so I don't know why he thought he had amassed, like, social capital to make this happen because nobody respects him. Everyone makes it clear they don't respect him. And he thought that, you know, Mr. Brown was going to lie over and die. Mr. Brown's two closest henchmen were going to turn on him just because he said, I don't think Mr. Brown's doing a great job anymore. I'm going to give him a bad glass door review. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's kill Mr. Brown. I mean, it was a very poorly planned coup. But now we, we have what may be my favorite sequence in the entire picture. Why don't you talk about it? Uh, Mr. Brown appears uh, and he goes to McClure, who they have the guns held on him. And he says, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to make it so you don't have to hear the sounds of the bullets that are going to kill you. And so he goes to McClure and he pulls out McClure's hearing aids. And when this happens, all the sound in the movie is gone and it's dead silent. And then we have a cut of these guns blasting at McClure. It was chilling. It was powerful. 
it was excellent. It was a fantastic idea and executed very well. It's a shame that the movie didn't have a good enough story to really carry moments like this because moments like this make the story feel like a classic, you know, which it does not deserve based on the story. Yeah. And we're singling out this particular moment for being brilliant, but but we could very easily there there are other moments in the movie that are, if are not brilliant or at least visually stunning and arresting that really linger in your mind. Yeah, this movie looks gorgeous. It just looks gorgeous, and there was clearly a lot of creativity and talent that went into making it. So we can roast the script, and we can roast the acting, and and, some and the writing, the, and the writing. Yeah, yeah. But you know, a lot of the elements. That went into the story aren't so great, but a lot of the elements that went into the filmmaking are just tremendous. So I can understand why this film was included on a list of top film noirs because it has enough of those really just stirring moments, I think, to justify it and and to make it, you know, probably something that maybe other film noir, um, you know, filmmakers went and saw and were like, oh, we could do something really interesting like and get inspired by, but we can do a better story. <laughs> So now we know what happened to McClure. Earlier you said some of your favorite characters were uh, Fanti and Mingo. Tell us what their final fates are. Well, I mean, they're gay in a 1950s movie. So they die, obviously. That's that's the law, basically, of the land of the time, unfortunately. Very homophobic. But um, they um, are have to go into hiding because... Mr. Brown realizes that the police are hot on his tail, so he needs to hide them because if they're arrested, it would be disastrous. So Fenty and Mingo are hiding out beneath Mr. Brown's uh, a hotel that he owns in um, a smuggler's kind of area that apparently Grazzi set up during Prohibition. And Mr. Brown comes in to assure them that he's you know going to take care of them, going to get them out of town, going to make sure that they stay away until the heat dies down and then bring them back. And he even gives them a little parcel, um, you know, to show his thanks of the money that he owes them. But what happens then, Kevin? When he opens, the, when the Mr. Brown leaves, Fanti and Mingo open up the package and see that it is an explosive. And then seconds later, there is a huge explosion. So here, here's a thing that I was, th- I think they could have made that work if um, this was a better written movie, because maybe blowing up the underground storage unit in your own hotel could have made could have been like a oh he's losing it he's losing his mind and mr brown's losing his grip on his sanity and he's making bad strategic choices but it's not really played that way here it's kind of just like nope just gotta blow up my henchman in a place that can be tied to me Uh, also letting the cops know that i have this big underground storage unit and of course it doesn't even work because fanti survives or no no i'm sorry mingo survives all gay men just look alike to you no he survives just long enough to make incriminating statements implicating mr brown and meanwhile mr brown has decided well i'll say i thought it was a kind of affecting death scene because he he was like basically tells the cop like i'm not doing this for you but mr brown should not have hurt fanty i was like that's really that's kind of touching these guys loved each other i thought it was nice um and he's really distraught. He's crying. I thought that was one of the weirdly enough, like emotional, most resonant mo- moments in in the film for me. Yeah, it, it really was, and it's like the genuine emotion that these two men felt for each other 
is what leads to uh, Mr. Brown's downfall. And it's like it's like it's it's a it's frustrating because you had all these other relationships in the film that you felt like everybody involved didn't really like each other or at least didn't treat each other very well. And this was the one exception to that. And it kind of it was like, why couldn't this kind of writing have been applied to other things in the movie where, you know, it, it was given more focus? I wanted to ask you, speaking of how people regard each other, does Mr. Brown, I don't think he loves his mall, but he seems to have some sort of intense psychosexual need for her. Yeah. And that is also kind of a human emotion that also contributes to his downfall because he decides after he learns that he's been implicated by the surviving henchman, he says, I'm going to get out of here. But his mall is with the police. So he sends somebody to go and shoot the police officer guarding his mall and then kidnaps the mall and has her taken to him at the airport. The mall's name is Susan, Kevin. (laughs) She has a name. So him doing that... Uh, turned out to be a mistake. Yeah, and it's like, obviously she betrayed you. Why would you want her to... Yeah, I mean, obviously it was some weird psychosexual shit, as you said. Um, And it's kind of is the implication of this noir that if people, men in particular, form too close of an obsession or a relationship with a woman, it's going to... Or, you know, I mean, I guess basically the message is if you're gay, you're going to die. And if you are straight, if you find if you are too into your lady, that's not going to end well for you, right? Because skirts aren't to be trusted. Because what happens? They go to this airport where it's really foggy. The police show up. It's hard to see where Brown is. Uh, what does Susan do? Susan, uh, resourceful young Moll, she is ends up commandeering sort of a spotlight device. And shining it on Mr. Brown, so the uh, so the cop and his you know backup can see and shoot at him. And it's a very it's a very uh, great use of light in this scene. I really very effectively shot. I think had I really think that it had the script been better, this would have been a classic. Because I mean, or you know, I, I guess it is a classic, but it would have been more justified in in. in and maybe one of the great films because there's so many great scenes like this and she's just following him along with the light and it's just, it looks great. And they capture him, but they don't kill him. I thought that was great too. I really appreciated that because like so often it's just like people are sort of flippantly killed, but in this case, you know, he's going to face, you know, a jury or a judge for his crimes and, you know, that's... And he, they lead him away. He yells, kill me, kill me. I love that. He only knows how to live and die, you know, and like live on his own terms or uh, kill or be killed. And instead, he's having to face the consequences for his actions and stay alive, presumably, unless he gets the death penalty. But I thought that was great. I really thought the ending was stupendous. And then you have this wonderful shadowy shot of the cop and Susan in silhouette against this foggy nighttime airport. And it's, I mean... I read that it's one of the considered one of the classic shots in film noir, and it's certainly deserved because it's wonderful. And then they walk off together, and it's like I wasn't even rooting for these people, and this is great. I mean, the 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 movie really elevates its stuff with uh, elevates itself with stuff like that. You know, even if you aren't a fan of the story, you'll you'll really appreciate some of those shots and some of these uh, little innovations throughout the film. 
Yeah, after an ending like that, you're left with a very positive memory of the movie until you start thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, if you think about the plot, you're like, what the heck happened? But if you think about the stuff that sticks with me is the good, I guess. I did think, I mean, wh- what do you think it was? What do you think that movie was trying to say? Jesus, I, I don't even know. Was it just like a, a pulp adventure? I guess it was pretty much a pulp adventure. Definitely had some bad things about women. Because you get the sense that the movie really blames Alicia and, to a greater degree, Susan for being with Mr. Brown. And and a lot is done by the hero, the cop, to guilt them over being with Mr. Brown and tell them that they're terrible for being with Mr. Brown and that they owe a debt to the society for being with Mr. Brown. And, you know, Mr. Brown is definitely castigated for sure as well. But there's a lot about how these women are almost somehow at fault for Mr. Brown's actions. So I thought that was interesting. Is it supposed to, are we supposed to consider and ponder Mr. Brown's philosophy that you need to have hatred in order to survive and thrive in life? Is it like the survival of the fittest sort of thing? Um, Maybe. I, I think with Mr. Brown, that kind of ended up messing him up at the end because at the end, he only knows how to kill or be killed. And his hatred would prompt him to expect the cop to kill him after all he's done. But all he has to do now is go through the cold, maybe in some ways hateful, but in many ways just kind of clinical justice system. Uh, and if we're going to be talking about the film's treatment of women, my question is at one point, Mr. Brown talks about the history of his relationship with Alicia. Do we take his account of that relationship at face value? No. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. He basically suggests that he loved her wildly and she cheated on him and disappeared. You know, based on the way he treats Susan, who we've seen has he, he has not really any reason to suspect she'd be cheating on him. You know, even if she's maybe a bit interested in the cop, like the, she doesn't really act upon that in any way. Um, you know, and, and he's suspicious. He's paranoid. He's having people tail her. He's having people corral her. I mean, this guy's obviously an abusive creep. And, and one thing about abusive creeps is that they often hur- hurl around su- suspicions about infidelity mm-hmm. because they're paranoid and because they, you know, it's a way to control the woman. I need to I need to do this to you because I can't trust you to stay faithful. Right. So I feel like that kind of behavior would drive someone like that to drink, you know, and then she ends up in a sanatorium. So I would I would say I would be very suspicious of Mr. Brown's account mostly based on his treatment of Susan. Does his desire slash need for Susan, obviously it's not healthy and it's, you know, sexist. Does it, does it humanize him for you? The fact that he has that need that only another person can fill. Not really. I mean, no. Because obviously Alicia filled it to her best ability for a while and then he got rid of her put her in a sanatorium and now he's moved on to a younger, hotter version. So I don't, I don't find that humanizing for him. I think there's ways they could have, especially with this actor, he, you know, I, 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 th- I thought he had probably the most, char- one of the most charismatic performances of the film in terms of the main characters. And he, you know, probably could have done something with maybe more backstory, maybe more, okay, here's why he thinks the way he is. But I think his treatment of women was not the thing to humanize him here. Cause he's just like, Oh, he's a psycho. And he, you know, Needs this lady. Who had the healthier attitude towards women? Our detective buddy or Mr. Brown? They both seem to be very damaged people. 
Mingo and Fanti at the beginning when they were chasing her down. And she said, I want to go get lunch. I don't want to go to the fight. And they said, we respect your choice. We'll get you lunch. Because all we're supposed to do is make you happy. The goons chasing down the woman at the start of the film respected her choices in life more than either the cop or her boyfriend, Mr. Brown. Ah, so once sexual desire enters the picture, once a man feels sexual desire for a woman, he doesn't treat you like a person anymore. There you go. Mingo and Fanny. They don't care the, about her sexually. They're just going to say, let's get some lunch. Let's let's get some. So to them, she's a person. She's a person. She's a person with needs, and they can fulfill them within the grounds of what is agreed upon. I think the detective creates an image of her that she can't possibly fulfill. And also, I think his image of her is more about what he wants. He wants to save her. And he's also going to, you know that guy's, when they get together, because it's presumed that they're going to get together at the end of the film, you know he's going to guilt her about being Brown's girl for the rest of their relationship. And you know the relationship is not going to last. She's going to be the next Rita, someone he just sees every once in a while whenever he gets a little bit horny. I'd be curious about how he met Rita. Did he get involved with her? Was she dating a corrupt club owner? Like, And, and he, he saw her as his project, and then, you know, they... They had a relationship from that. I'd be curious because, yeah, he seems like, like Mr. Brown, he probably has a pattern. Yeah. Would you say the big combo is a big mess I'd or say a big th- boom? <laughs> I'd say the big combo is a big combo because on the one hand, it's a huge disappointment in terms of its plotting story and structure. But on the other, there's enough gems situated within the rough to make this definitely worth your while in terms of watching. So you'd recommend that people watch it? Oh, yeah. Big combo. <laughs> I think uh, I'd recommend that people watch a few carefully curated clips on something like YouTube. That's fair. Because, boy, was this a slog. <laughs> it's a slog to get through. If you're able to wa- get through a slog and have an eye for what's good, definitely watch the whole thing. If you're like Kevin and you don't have that patience, then definitely. <laughs> I'm a very patient man. Definitely watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Skip around. Doesn't the big combo sound like a, like an order at a fast food joint? Like, yeah. I'll have the big combo. Yeah. And, like, half the meal sucks, and then half the meal is wonderful. <laughs> that way make sure it's at the right temperatures to give it the big heat. Oh. But and, if and you it, eat too much, it'll make you big sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it, I was about to say. <laughs> is our work here done? I think our work here is done. Big combo out. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.